The wildly popular Jesus Storybook Bible reminds us that every story whispers his name. Every story whispers Jesus' name. And what that means is that the stories in the Bible are not simply trivial facts of history. They are not simply data points that can be collected and analyzed as if they had no bearing on our life. Every story whispers his name means that there is more to the story than meets the eye. They are true stories that really happened in space-time history, but they are true stories with a spiritual meaning. St. Paul says they were written down for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And there is no hope like the hope of Christ, our hope. And so all of these stories are pointing us to Christ, that we might have hope, not wishful thinking, but deep and profound expectation. Now, over the past several months, I've shared my approach to the scriptures with you in a variety of ways, and I would like to remind you of how I'm approaching these stories again today. In simplest terms, I am approaching the Holy Scriptures the way I approach the Holy Sacraments of baptism and communion. The sacraments, as you know, are simple physical signs with a profound spiritual significance. In other words, there is more to them than meets the eye. The water of baptism signifies cleansing from sin, circumcision, and cutting off of the flesh, clothing with Christ. The bread and wine of communion signify the broken body and the shed blood of Christ on the cross. It signifies our sacrifice of giving thanks and our sharing in God's life. Well, likewise, the scriptures are a collection of many books. And these many books tell one story. In this book, you find many Words, human words that signify the divine word. This book of paper and ink and leather is a physical sign that spiritually signifies the sword of the spirit. There is more to it than meets the eye. So with that in mind, I would like for us to go to 1 Kings 18 and enter into this story recognizing that, yes, this is a story that happened in space-time history, but it is a story with a spiritual meaning. It is a story that points to Jesus Christ. Now, some people will say that a story like this simply shows us how to stand up to our enemies or how to engage in worship wars or how to act like the next church reformer or how to resist peer pressure or go against the flow. And I would say there is some truth to all of that. There is some truth to all of that. But if that is as far as we go, then we've only gone as far as moralism or exemplarism. We haven't gone all the way to the point of the story. And I want you to know the point of the story is this. It is a story about God's tender mercy and severe justice. 
It's a story about the gospel of God's grace towards his people. It's a story that tells us about the gospel of Jesus Christ and his victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. In a nutshell, deep down, embedded in this story, is the story of how the Savior came into the world to crush the serpent's head. As I mentioned to you in a message this week, I can say again now, the message of Christ crucified for the sins of the world is hidden in plain sight in 1 Kings 18. Now, I'm going to lay just a little bit of groundwork, and then I want to show you the victory of Jesus over his enemies. I want to show you the Savior crushing the serpent's head on the altar of the cross at Mount Calvary. So bear with me for just a few moments, and we will get to the heart of this story in just a bit. Now, we just heard this story in the public reading of Scripture. And one thing it makes clear to us is that the more things change, the more they remain the same. What do I mean by that? Well, like other stories we have heard, we find Israel in a very bad place, spiritually and morally. Like Adam and Eve, Ahab and Jezebel have turned away from the Lord and they've tasted the forbidden fruit and they have led the people of God in rebellion against the Lord. They have indulged themselves in the fruits of money, sex, and power. And all of the effects of this are being felt in Israel from the least to the greatest. Ahab and Jezebel are urging everyone to take part in this carnivalesque rebellion. And as a result of this, Israel is oppressed by evil rulers, suffering the effects of drought and famine agonizing over the miseries of sin and death in this life, and they are in fact burning up in the fiery trial of God's discipline against them. Israel has exchanged the true story of creation and redemption for a false story of corruption and rebellion. And so like her forefathers, Israel has turned away from the sovereign Lord and trusted in a lying serpent. Israel has fallen from grace. Israel is like a server I met at a pub in Dallas just a few short years ago. When the server discovered that I was a pastor, she told me and my friends that she used to be a Christian. I asked her, what do you mean you used to be a Christian? And she said to me, well, I've had a fall. And I don't know if I'm ever going to get back up again. So I said, well, how far did you fall? And she said, all the way. All the way. Israel has fallen all the way. Her sin and her shame have driven her away from the glory of the temple garden in Jerusalem out to the dust and ashes of the wilderness. And I say this because the temple that Solomon built was a sign that pointed back to the garden to remind the people of what they lost. But it was also a sign that pointed forward to the paradise of God as a sign to remind them of what God had promised to restore to them. 
Israel is caught in the downward spiral of idolatry and apostasy. She's worshiping the gods of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And with each passing day, she wanders farther and farther away from the true and living God out into the exile of the wilderness. Israel is doing the unthinkable. She is sexualizing politics and religion. She is sacrificing her children to the gods of money, sex, and power. And what we see happening in Israel is something that should never have happened. The Israelite Baal worshipers perverted two of the most precious gifts that God has ever given his people. The gift of sex and the gift of children. The gift of sex was perverted in their day, like in our day, through pornography and prostitution and promiscuity. The gift of children perverted through abortion, abandonment, and abuse, not to mention abduction. Child sex trafficking is big business in the 21st century, just as it was in the days of Israel and Baal worship. So you see... The more things change, the more they remain the same. This is the spiritual context into which Elijah the prophet was sent to serve. It's the spiritual context in which he is to discharge the duties of his ministry. So after three and a half years, what do we have happening here? We have Elijah coming out of hiding, confronting political rulers with their sin and challenging religious leaders to an epic battle for the hearts and the minds of people. Elijah is taking the battle to Mount Carmel. Why? Because Mount Carmel was one of the centers of Baal worship. It is, as Jordan Peterson would say, Elijah is going to kill the dragon in its cave. That's why he goes there. Like David confronting Goliath, Elijah calls out the prophets of Baal. He wants them to come out, pistols at dawn, meet me at high noon. It's like the scene out of a western. Elijah wants to have a showdown with the prophets of Baal. But along the way, he also confronts Israel. They're not out of the woods yet. They haven't escaped. He confronts them with their sin and challenges them to take a leap of faith back to Yahweh. When he says to them, you're limping between two sides, he uses that word limp to explain to them that he understands, he knows their condition, that they are broken, that they are ruined, that they've got real trouble. They need to be healed. And so they are limping along with the injuries of their heart and soul. Throughout the story of God's people in the Old Testament, you see this conflict, spiritual warfare raging between the hearts and minds of the people of God and their decisions between Yahweh and Baal and other gods. And what you have happening in Israel is not uncommon. It's not unlike what you see in our day. Some of the Israelites were totally devoted to the Lord God and they worshiped and served him only. But other of the Israelites had completely abandoned the Lord God and they worshipped and served other gods only. But the vast majority of Israel were right in this middle space where many people, many professing Christians in our world are. They are trying to worship and serve two gods, both gods at the same time, hedging their bets, trying to mix and match and blend things together. And why would they do that? Well, they do it because... They believe that Yahweh is uncool and Baal is 
Totally cool. They do it because Yahweh is otherworldly, but Baal is real world. Yahweh is a backwoods desert god, but Baal is this uptown culture deity. Yahweh is spiritual, abstract, ethereal, but Baal, he's one of us. He's earthy, carnal, tangible. Yahweh's religion is decent and orderly, but Baal's religion is decadent and orgiastic. Yahweh's religion is deeply God-centered, but Baal's religion is totally self-centered, man-centered. Yahweh's religion is established for the praise of God's glory and grace, but Baal's religion is established simply for the passions and the pleasures of men's greed. Now you can understand why so many Israelites limped and wavered between two sides. The more things change, the more they remain the same. You know what was happening in Israel is what happens in our day, by the way. But what was happening was that in times of crisis and emergency, the people called on Yahweh. He will save us. He will deliver us. But in every other time, in the ordinary times, in times of peace and prosperity, they simply called on Baal who was their real sustainer, the one who kept them going. They cried out to Yahweh on the Sabbath day, but every other day of the week, they're calling on Baal, the storm god, because they want him to answer. They're limping back and forth between these gods, undecided, uncommitted, can't quite figure out which way to go. So what does Elijah do? He comes to them and he calls them together, Draw near to me. Come near Israel. He's speaking on behalf of God. He's not trying to push them away. He wants them to come close. Not so he can see the whites of their eyes and take a clean shot at them. He wants them to come close because he's trying to restore their relationship to God. He wants to set before them life or death. Life in Yahweh. Death in Baal. Choose this day whom you will serve. So how does he do this? Well, he challenges the prophets of Baal to a full-scale worship war in the public square. And notice what he does here. He gives the prophets of Baal every advantage, and he puts on himself every disadvantage. The, the advantages are, I'm going to give you home turf, home field advantage. You can win the toss. You can pick which side of the field you want. You can receive. You can make the first play. It's all on you. And I will take the leftovers. And that's how the story plays out. The worship war is waged from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., six hours. From noon to 3 o'clock, a lot of different things happen. The prophets of Baal are getting frantic because for all of their crying out and dancing and cutting and jumping around, they cannot get Baal to answer them. He is completely silent. But Elijah goes about the business of healing the altar. Our English translations say he repaired the altar, which is what he did. But deeper than that, the Hebrew says he healed the altar, which had been destroyed. And that's significant because it signifies that God wants to heal the wound of this limping people. So while the prophets of Baal are shaking and rattling and jumping around all over their altar, 
Elijah is simply going about the quiet work of a priest. He's a prophet, but he's acting like a priest. He builds the altar of stones. He puts God's name back on the people. They were Jacob, the cheater, but he reminds them that they're now Israel, the one who struggles with God and who lives in the glory of God. He arranges the wood on the stones. He slaughters the bull, chops it into pieces, lays the pieces of the bull on the wood of the altar. And in this part of the story, you should be hearing echoes, thick, loud echoes of Abraham placing his son Isaac on the wood of the altar. It is a reminder that God will provide healing, life for his people. Elijah is preparing the way for the Lord and building a bridge between sinners and the Savior. And in all of these things, he's acting like a mediator. And a mediator, first of all, representing God to the people, and then second of all, representing the people back to God. He represents God to the people when he draws near to the people to preach to them and not at them, to preach for them because he loves them, but not against them. How long will you limp between two sides? That is not a way to condemn them, but to confront them with their sin and say, come home, you've been away too long. He's moving them deeper and deeper into an either-or faith crisis. He's not going to let them live with this both-and faith compromise. You can't dance between two sides. You can't keep going back and forth. He brings them to a crossroads because one way or another, they are going to have to choose between God and Baal, between Yahweh and the storm God, and they are going to have to live with the consequences of that decision. So Elijah finally brings them to the place he wants them. Here they are, right at the crossroads of decision. And it's three o'clock in the afternoon. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, at the time of the offering of the oblation, at the time that the ascension gift is to be offered up to God, Elijah draws near and he prays. Unlike the prophets of Baal who were trying to get God, their God's attention for the last six hours by screaming and dancing and bleeding and jumping all over their altar, prophet of God quietly draws near to the altar by faith and he simply calls on the name of the Lord. He calls on the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He does it in this way. O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God of Israel and that I am your servant and that by your word I've done all these things. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, so that this people will know that you, Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. You see how simple this prayer is? Do you see how direct it is? Oftentimes, paganism sort of seeps into our lives, and we think, if God is going to hear my prayer, I'm going to have to do something spectacular. I'm going to have to pray hard. I'm going to have to pray long. I'm going to have to get up at 4.30 in the morning to show that I really mean it. Or I'm going to have to stay up late and pray for hours on end. Then he will hear me. And yet, Elijah shows us here that if you want God to hear you when you pray, you don't have to go through all of that. 
If you want the true and living God to hear you when you pray, you simply call on the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you have his full and undivided attention. What does Elijah pray for? He doesn't pray for himself. He prays for his people. He prays that God will save Israel. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Think about what it means for Elijah to pray that God will spare his people and save them from their sins. Think about the sins they've committed. Idolatry, apostasy, child sacrifice, cult prostitution, various forms of paganism. And it gets worse from there. They've committed all of these things, broken his law, torn down his altar, killed his prophets. And Elijah, who feels like he's the only one left, prays on their behalf, God, save your people. Forgive their sins. No answer ever came from the storm God. But a definitive answer came from the Son of God. Lightning flashed out of a clear blue sky. Thunder roared. Fire fell from heaven. And look what happened. Now what you expect to see happen isn't what happened. What you expect to see happen is that fire fell from heaven and the wrath of God swept through that community and destroyed every last Israelite that had ever bowed their knee to Baal. You expect to see the wrath of God poured out and destroy all of those people and to bring them to death for their many sins against God. But that is not what happened. Fire fell from heaven and the mercy of God was put on full display, not the justice of God. Did the people deserve condemnation? Yes. But the prophet of God had prayed for compassion and conversion. Elijah prayed that God would act according to his mercy, not according to his justice. So what happened when the fire of Yahweh failed? The people of God were spared, but why were they spared? Is it because the wrath of God was satisfied? No. The Spirit says that the fire of Yahweh ate the burnt offering, the bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and drank the water that was in the trench. What does that signify? It signifies not that God was burning with anger and rage against his people, it signifies that God drew near to them, found their prayer and offering acceptable, and that he ate and drank with them. This is restoration of fellowship, reconciliation between two warring parties. This is not justice. This is mercy. And how did the people respond? When they realized that fire fell from heaven and that they lived to tell about it, how did they respond? They responded by confessing their faith. The Lord is God. Yahweh is the Lord. The Lord is God. Confess their faith in the true and living God. 
And how were they able to do that? How can we explain the radical transformation in their life? Because we remember that the prophet asked God to do this very thing for them. Change their hearts. Cause them to turn back to you. And this is precisely what the Lord did in answer to the prophet's prayer. Do they deserve to be cremated by the fire of heaven? Yes. But mercy is not about God giving us what we deserve. It's about God withholding what we deserve and giving us things we don't deserve. And he does it for his glory and for our good. They called on the name of the Lord and he forgave them. And Elijah brought down Baal's prophets and slaughtered them at the Kishon brook. The sword cut down the enemies of God and the waters washed away the sins of Israel. When we say that God's grace is greater than all our sins, it can sound poetic. It can sound triumphant. It can sound brash and arrogant. But you have to know that it is the absolute truth. This is what Israel experienced on Mount Carmel. God's grace is greater than all my sins. And because his grace is greater than all my sins, what must I do? I must confess that the Lord is God. He is my Savior. He is the one who delivers me from evil. He is the one that rescues me from the mouth of the dragon. What is this story about? It's a story that points backwards to all of the things God has been doing to remind his people of his love and faithfulness. It's also a story that points forward to all that God promises to do for the sake of his people for the life of the world in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. We've been looking back and seeing how this story connects to other Old Testament stories that we have explored, but now we need to look forward and see how this story connects to Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's at this point in the story when it's good to ask the question that my wife used to ask me quite often, what does this have to do with Jesus? And I'll show you what it has to do with Jesus. Let's connect the story of the crucifixion of Jesus with 1 Kings 18, and here's what we see. Political leaders gathered the Jews with their scribes and Pharisees at a place called the Stone Pavement. Crowds wavered between two sides. One day they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a few days later they are saying, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Crucify him. When Jesus is questioned about all these things, he answers not a word. His silence was deafening. 
By the time Jesus and the crowds make their way outside Jerusalem, out into the wilderness, up to Mount Calvary, he's definitely outnumbered. He can say with absolute truth that he is the only one left. He is the last servant of the Lord, God's final word to Israel, the only prophet remaining. And yet the people are covering their ears and hardening their hearts and refusing to hear him. Like a bull slaughtered and cut into pieces, so Jesus was stripped and scourged and cut to shreds. Like a bull laid out on the wood of the altar, Jesus is laid out on the cross and stretched over the altar of this wood. From morning till noon, scribes, Pharisees, and crowds are limping around the cross, ranting and raving, scoffing and spitting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And at some point in the midst of all of that chaos, Jesus prays and cries out, Eli, Eli! His enemies thought he was calling for Elijah the prophet. But in reality, he was calling for God. My God, my God. And there was no answer. And it was in that hour and in that moment that Jesus on the cross felt the absence of God and heard the silence of heaven. A few days before Jesus was crucified, he said, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. On the night before he was betrayed and delivered up to his enemies, Jesus actually prayed for the whole world when he said to his father, that they may know you, the true and living God, and know that you have sent me. And on the day of the crucifixion, Jesus prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. At the time of the sacrifice of the oblation, at three o'clock, In the afternoon, Jesus gave a loud cry and gave up his spirit and his life expired. At Mount Carmel, the fire of Yahweh fell on a chopped up bull that represented the sinners of Israel. At Mount Calvary, the fire of Yahweh fell on the crucified sin bearer that represented you and me. And when an enemy saw these things, his heart was changed. He called on the name of the Lord and confessed, Truly, this man was the Son of God. When Jesus was preparing himself to ascend the mountain of the Lord and to lay down his life on the altar of the cross, he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And Jesus, the true and better Elijah, who was seized in the garden of Gethsemane, in turn seized the principalities and powers, the rulers of this age, the prince of the world, the ancient serpent, and he brought them down. He brought them all the way down and destroyed their power. And how does he do this? He does it by exposing them to public shame at the cross. 
He does it by crushing the serpent's head in both his death and resurrection. He proclaims his victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, both to spirits in prison and to angels in heaven. He declares his victory over sin and death for your sake and mine. This story is about the power of the gospel to save sinners by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You need to know that like Israel, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you were made alive in Christ. And you were made alive in Christ because whatever the record of debt that was against you, whatever God had on file against you, all of the record of your sin, all of the record of your rebellion, whatever it was, was canceled, was removed, abolished in Christ at the cross. He bore it all to the altar of the cross that you might be set free from the bondage and the burden of those sins. This story is about the good news of Jesus Christ, his victory over sin and death. It's a story about how mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a story about the power of the gospel to save sinners because of the mercy and love of God for them. How long will you limp between two sides? How long will you waver between multiple opinions? When will you come and be healed? Fire has fallen from heaven. Jesus is Lord. Cry out to him. Call on his name. Come near. And you will find rest for your soul. Healing for your heart. Mercy instead of judgment. Life instead of death. Call on his name for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.